All right, it's Tuesday. Welcome to episode number two of this week. Uh, overall, I don't know where it's at now. I used to know where we were at number-wise, but Brad and I have been doing so much recording of podcasts, so we want to thank you for li- taking time to listen to another episode of Backlash Podcast. We're episode number two of our five days in a row of podcasting, and we're going to talk to Ty Senate about northern Wisconsin muskies, specifically about the Chippewa flowage. And within that, I'm sure there's def- different things and tactics that Ty might talk about or, you know, how he finds fish in a certain location and what he's looking for on the water for you to take and use if it's Minnesota, southern Wisconsin, wherever you plan on fishing. Hopefully you can take something away from Ty for early season musky fishing. As per usual, Brad Hoppy with Musky Mayhem Tackle is my co-host. And Brad, it's another day. It's another podcast. I don't know how much I'm going to enjoy putting all this together, but you know, it's been fun talking to guys about early season musky fishing. Well, we're the season's almost upon us, Jeff. And like you said in the last one, you know, people are fishing muskies throughout the country already. It's just this northern upper Midwest area we're not, but that season's knocking on the door. Nothing gets you a little bit more excited than uh, sharing a bunch of stuff and stories and tactics and what have you. Kind of get the ball rolling for the season upon us. And again, talking about the season upon us, we'll keep this intro short and sweet. If you're looking for gear for this season, check out TeamRhinoOutdoors.com and check out MuskyMayhemTackle.com. With that being said, we did an intro yesterday. We're going to do another one tomorrow. And so we will go dial up that conversation with Ty Sennett talking about northern Wisconsin muskie fishing. Our guest today is Ty Sennett, and Ty, you've had we've had you on the podcast before, but if somebody's looking to get in touch with you to book a trip, how can they go about doing that? Easiest way is to go on uh, tysennett.com, and you'll see all the information there, and uh, you can call me, but uh, easier just to shoot me a text, because I usually have my cell phone with me, and uh, we'll be able to respond to a text easier at 612-839-1227. Perfect. And Ty, thanks for coming out and taking some time out of your schedule. I know that, you know, this is not number one priority for everybody, but thank you for that. Well, I was painting in the garage, so this this is a kind of a blessing. Yeah, this helps get get out of a little bit of housework, right? <laughs> yeah. All right, Ty, we started out the last one that we did yesterday, and we were talking water temperatures in pretty much every magazine that you've ever read since musky fishing's been around. They talk much about water temperature and the importance of it in the spring. Is that something that is of crucial importance to you? You know, there's talk like if, you know, you're always looking for the warmest water, you know, the warmest water that you can find during the early part of the season. Is that, like I said, is that a concern for you? Is that something that factors into your plans? So I don't actually look for like warm water on the lake. I look for the whole lake to be a certain temperature. And, and I kind of base it off the main lake water temp and the back bay water temp and the creek water temps and kind of combine them because I, I think the fish kind of go through the same schedule throughout the whole lake. I mean, if a back bay warms up a little faster, these fish don't spend the whole time in that back bay. So they're going to be out in the main lake at some point in the day. So I look for the whole lake. I I, I I go off the whole lake temperature, not just, I, I don't look for warm water per se. Um, I look for the lake to warm up in general. 
And uh, if it doesn't warm up, then I know we're going to probably struggle a little bit. What would be an optimal temperature, would you say, would, would get things going to start the season? You know, I like to see the water temp in the low 60s at least to get going in the season. And our season opens up up here Memorial Weekend. So, you know, you got the end of May. Hopefully by then our water temps are over 60 degrees for at least a week straight. Once you got water temps at 60 degrees for, let's say, four to six days, then those fish settle down and get out of their spawning mode. Because that's really what slows down the bigger fish is that cold water and they still get in their, their mind that they're going to be spawning. If I can get that water temp up to 60 to 65 degrees, that's perfect. And then the other thing I've always heard is north side of the lake is usually warmer. Is that something that is of concern to you as well? Uh, you know, there is something to that. Um, like, and, and a lot of that is that there's still a lot of males left over in those Northern spawning bays. Cause they do spawn on the Northern bays usually. Um, and some of that is because the weeds are going to come up sooner there too. So that gives their fry some protection, but overall you're still going to have a lot of small males in those back bays on the North end. So you're going to have more action on the Northern bays. But some of my bigger fish are on the southern areas. Uh, when I say areas, it's not necessarily southern bays because I don't think the southern bays are really where we get some of the bigger fish. It's usually the, the structure that's away from the north bays and north creeks and stuff. And then one other thing is, what's the importance of weed growth? Is that something that you find to be a major factor in location for a muskies? And then obviously if there's muskies there, you're going to fish there. So is you know, is weed growth something that you check out a lot before, as say, pre-musky season? Yeah, I'm out every day while I fish in, in May, so get to see where all the, the best weeds are. And the bigger fish in the system are going to be on the main lake bars, right where we, we normally would walleye fish, actually. And they're going to be on the main lake bars, and the biggest fish is going to attach to the best weed growth. So if you had one patch of milfoil, and milfoil to me is, is the most optimum weed in any lake that, that there is weeds, where there is milfoil, I should say. Milfoil is going to have um, the most oxygen per acre and the most dense per acre, um, the dense, most dense structure, I should say. So if I can find some milfoil um, that is, that's coming up and is really fresh, then I'll attack that. If, if I can't find really good milfoil, some thin, uh, thin leaf green cabbage is what I'll look for. Um, the last thing I'm going to look for is like a, a broad leaf, like a tobacco cabbage. That to me, that's not what I'm looking for. So Ty, when, when you're looking for those weeds, I mean, what's your optimal way to actually go out and attack and look for those weeds? I know you said walleye fishing and it's kind of interesting. The first one of this series, we were talking to Phil, Captain Philip Bowerly out of uh, Leech Lake and of course, he had the same kind of topics where he's he's doing the walleye thing. So if you're not a walleye fisherman or a pan fisherman, what would you do to go out and try to find weeds? I know you have some history for the guy that maybe is hitting a new body of water and doesn't have that history. How would you attack that? That's actually a really good question. So here's the thing about the chip-off flowage that is very frustrating. Even though I have history out here, it's different every year. So like a weed bed that was plush and green one year might be gone the next year. So I have to relearn the whole lake every year. I mean, there, there's a few weed beds that are pretty standard, um, like in Minnesota Bay and 
you know, you'll get some weeds on Sand Island, Birch Island, that kind of stuff, Pete's Bar. But even like a Pete's Bar, which is the probably the most historic spot out here on the Chippewa Flowage, the weeds are different every year out there. And where you had really good action because of a, a, a big patch of weeds one year, that next year they might be gone. So what I'll do is kind of a combination of my side imaging. I don't use sonar at all. I basically never look at my sonar um, unless I'm driving. When I'm on the move, you know, at 50 mile an hour, of course, you can't use side imaging then. So I'll, I'll have my sonar on looking for open water bait fish, which is rare. So I'll, I'll do a combination of side imaging. And then the other thing, the other 50% is my casting. Um, in the back of the boat, I'll use something that will get down a little bit more and I'll be actually feeling the weed line with my bait. And then I know to keep my boat out a little further from the weed edge because these fish are going to be guarding, the bigger fish anyway, are going to be guarding the outside weed edge. So if I can feel a weed and it's halfway back on my cast, I know I'm too close. So I'll back out. I want to have it to where my bait is hitting the water and it, it's covering 10 feet, maybe 15 to 20 feet. And then I'm coming off the weed edge. So if, I just want to make sure that my presentation is to where my bait is hitting the right area. Yeah, I, I think you hit something on the head there. I mean, side imaging is such an important tool for locating weed edges. And definitely you can use that as a tool as you fish those weed edges as well, Ty. One thing that I've always said too, I mean, for the guys that maybe don't have side imaging or, you know, who knows what they've got in their boat, but usually in the mornings, like the early morning, it's usually calm. There's not very much wind and you can go out there and actually visually find some of these weed beds as well. And I typically see the same thing that you're talking about where our weed beds change year to year. I mean, they're going to be in that same general area. But that weed edge is going to be different. And I think a lot of that has to do with how much ice we had, how much snow cover we had, what died, what didn't die over the winter, um, and things like that. But just another way to potentially go out and find some different stuff, I guess, is what I was kind of thinking, too. Yeah, and, and one big tool, like you're exactly right. So on opener, our water is going to be the clearest it's going to be all year until, you know, right at freeze up, it kind of clears up a little some years, not every year, but normally there's, there's not the zooplankton. There's not the microorganisms that are in the water. The bug hatch is not there yet. So the water, you can actually see really well. So on a nice, calm, sunny day when, you know, the sun's very high in the spring overhead, I'll actually, with my GPS, if I can see the weeds and I know my boat is perfectly positioned because I can actually physically see the weeds, I'll put a waypoint on my GPS and I'll, I'll work around that weed bed and I'll put waypoints as I go so that I know when I come back there, um, when it's cloudy or when it's low light conditions, even after dark, I know I'm in the best position boat-wise to hit that weed bed. Makes perfect sense. So switching gears a little bit, uh, let's talk trolling versus casting. Okay. Trolling wise, you're talking to the wrong guy. I do not troll at all. The Chippewa Flowage is probably one of the worst trolling lakes in the world. There's a few guides that troll out here and their numbers are very, very low compared to casting guides. It's just not an open water, open water trolling lake. You'll get some fish if you're trolling near cribs and brush piles and that's usually usually an august thing which i don't really like to do that anyway in august when you're pulling fish from 20 feet down that's not the best thing so 
trolling wise, this lake is really not geared towards trolling. So I'm not the best guy to talk to for that. Now, if I would troll out here, I, I would do it a lot different than most everybody else. It's, I, I would assume you could get some fish speed trolling out here with spinner baits and some of the, like, like Brad, you make some heavier spinner baits. If you could get down with some of those, you, you could in the weeds. When I say down, I mean five feet. So if you could get down five feet with your bait, you know, in weeds that top out at, you know, six feet that are down some deeper weed edge stuff that would work, but I'm basically a caster. I think that's fine, Ty. I mean, I kind of knew that anyway, but you know, it's just, it's just a different perspective on what people might be thinking. Right. And so I kind of wanted to highlight that. Let's talk a little bit about your casting and exactly the size of baits. I mean, we're going to talk about bigger, small baits in the spring, kind of get your, uh, your input on what you like to do and choose to do that way. Okay. Size wise. Um, again, like it all depends on the water temperatures. If the water temperatures are up there in that 60 to 65 degree range, then I'm going to throw a little bit bigger stuff. going to target a lot more main lake stuff. If the water temps are not quite to 60 or they've only been at 60 degrees for a day or two, then I'm probably going to size down a little bit, throw, um, you know, like some, oh, I'd say six inch bucktails or, you know, six inch twitch baits, minnow baits, small gliders. Uh, the small phantoms are really good. Um, hellhounds really good in the spring. So stuff like that. I won't throw a lot of the mag dogs. We don't get a lot of fish on pounders out here on the chip off loge as far as like bulldogs. I'll throw like the, the standard, the regular size bulldog, which is, I don't know what size that is, like eight inches or whatever. Um, I'll save the mag dogs for when the water temp gets over 65 degrees. As far as like cowgirls and showgirls, I won't throw cowgirls unless the water temp is over 60. So in the spring, when the water temp is in that 65 degree range, then yeah, I'm throwing cowgirls. I'm throwing some bigger stuff. There is um, one time when I will throw cowgirls and that's if there's a storm that rolls in and it's windy then i'll throw some big stuff and those big females really get active on those days in the spring um if it's a sunny calm day which you hope for in the spring just for the pleasure of it then i'm going to be throwing showgirls and, and even baby girls baby girls are you know bucktails that size are really what these fish want when the water temp is cold and what kind of speed of retrieval are we talking on most of that stuff, Ty? Again, that kind of goes with um, your conditions for the day. If if it's standard warm, calm day, then I'm going to go a little bit slower. If it's a cloudy, nasty day, I'm going to go a little bit faster. If it's raining and windy, then I'm going to go a little bit faster kind of because they're going to be a little amped up on those days. But on a standard day, you're going to want to slow down on your bucktails and you'll see a lot of fish come in on the chip off loads that are uh, way behind, like seven feet, nine feet behind your bait. And you can come back a little bit later and get some of those fish with like a, a little slower yet presentation where, where you're throwing like a twitch bait and letting it hang a little bit, even waiting them to keep them down a little bit. Awesome. So you've talked a lot about water temp. I'm curious do you see any kind of calendar activity as well out on the trip? Um, yes and no. Historically, you will see some bigger fish caught during certain moon phases. 
I am not much of a moon phase guy because I, I got to get out and fish every single day anyway. And I got, I'm out there all day, every day, pretty much. I don't really go by moon phases just because I don't want to get stuck in a rut in my head where I'm like, okay, this is a terrible moon phase. So I'm just going to be depressed here for a little bit, for lack of better words, and not put in the effort. I want to put in the same effort all day long. And I, I, th- I think you can outfish a moon phase by hitting good fish, good spots, and just putting the best bait in front of them. And if you put a bad bait on a bad spot during a great moon phase, that doesn't mean you're going to catch a fish. So doing everything right during the worst moon phase, you can still catch fish. I've heard a few things on moon phases. One of them would be that if there's moving water within the system, it seems like the moon phase has less of an impact. Would you agree with that? I think so. Like if you go up to Lake of the Woods, your best, I mean, yeah, again, historically there's going to be periods in the moon phase where your big fish, like two days before the moon phase, you might see a few more big fish, but like Lake of the Woods is very comparable to this in how it's set up. And two in the afternoon, you're going to catch fish. I don't care what moon phase it is. So you better have your game face on at two in the afternoon. So, and, and you see differences throughout every year is a little different. Like we've had some, some years where after dark, it was great. It had nothing to do with the moon phase per se, as much as just, you had to be out there after dark. We had, uh, I'd say two years ago, our mornings were really good and it had nothing to do with moon phases. I would say Lake of the Woods is, is similar to the chip in that it's very consistent and that you don't need to use moon phases to catch fish. Now, if you're on Vermilion, if you're on Mille Lacs, if you're on uh, so Round Lake up here, th- those are more natural bodies of water. Vermilion is the least natural of, of all of those, but those fish definitely seem to go by moon phases more than these. I'm curious, though, too, just on the calendar side is what I was kind of going into there, Ty. Um, I love all the the aspects of the moon phase side of it, but more so like on a date type scenario more than the moon itself do you see any of those calendar days that kind of like start sparking where these fish are going to have movements not necessarily out here again this is probably one of the more consistent lakes that i've ever fished in in that you're going to go through phases where yeah you're only going to see three four fish a day and it'll gradually get better and better um and when it's really good when you're seeing 10 to 12 fish a day it'll gradually get worse and worse but it's, you don't see many drastic swings where you see 12 fish one day and two fish the next day. This lake stays very consistent to me anyway. And luckily I get to be out here every day so I can kind of pick and choose spots a little, a little more generously. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the chip. I know things have really changed over there over the uh, years with uh, size regulations and things like that. And it's really kind of becoming a, a cool destination. Yeah, you know, like uh, like a normal year, you catch a hundred fish, you might have one fifty inch out of the out of the hundred fish. And a couple of years ago, we had four, with fifty two being our largest. So, I mean, it, there definitely are some big fish out here, and every year is a little different. Um, the years where you have early spring seem to be a little better than the the late springs. It's a frustrating lake. I will tell you that. Like to the people that come up here for a week and expect to go to the spots they caught them on the year before and catch them, 
it, it just doesn't work that way. You know, like let's, let's just do a generic spot here, sand Island. One year you could clobber them off that spot. The next year you won't even see a fish on it. And that's just the way the chip is. And I don't know whether it's a bait fish thing or a, or a, uh, uh, weed thing, boat traffic. I don't know what it is, but these fish definitely pick certain spots and they will, you'll get numbers off certain areas. And for instance, we caught 50 fish off one little tiny spot on the West side one year. I'd never caught a fish there in my life. So the average person to come up here on vacation, if you go out and hit the spots you hit the previous year, thinking you're going to have as good a year or better, you're probably going to have a worse year. So the, the best thing to do is half the spots you hit, you want to be proven spots. The other half, just go off the wall, random spots, try to learn new stuff, new structure, because there always is new structure out here. It's ever changing. And the spots that I caught fish on when I was a kid, to me, those are terrible spots now. And I still go back and fish them because one of these years, one of those spots is going to be a great spot. So that's why the chip off loge is to me, it's the best job security in the world, but it's also very frustrating to the average person that comes up for a weekend or a day or a week. It can be tough for that. But just, you just got to get in your head that you are on a new body of water that you've never fished every single day. Even if you saw fish on a spot the day before, get it in your head that there's no fish on that spot. I'm going to try it quick, but I, I'm looking for new spots. You're always looking for new spots. I think that ties back into any body of water in a sense. I know exactly what you're talking about. I don't know if the listeners totally get all of that. But the thing that I always try to encourage people to is do some experimenting every day, you know, and, and a lot of times you need to experiment when the fish are actually going so that you can actually put something together. You know, I think a lot of times we, as musky anglers, we all are guilty of just doing the same thing over and over and over again. Well, it worked yesterday. Why isn't it working today? So yeah. definitely, I think that's a valid point. Yeah, it's, um, it's something that everybody gets stuck in that rut. And, it, you know, you can't do the same thing over and over and expect better results. So Ty, let's talk one thing. You, you, had, you talked about that spot where you caught 50 muskies in one season off that one spot. Have you ever seen that spot be as productive? Do you still catch muskies off that spot? You know, you, like you said, you mentioned trying different stuff. How many times do you return back to that spot in a season before you go like, yeah, it's not going to produce this year? Yeah, last year we caught one fish off that spot. That tells you anything. Um, the year before we maybe caught like five or six. Um, it, it's something now that since we did catch 50 off that one spot, I will hit it, you know, once every two weeks or something just to, as a, a heat check per se. Again, like I hit so many different spots that, and if you're fishing with me, you probably go, man, we've never fished here before. Well, no, we probably haven't. And maybe I haven't fished there in three, four weeks. But that's how you find these good spots out here on the chip is you got to hit a lot of spots that some of them don't even look like anything. Some do. And some of the best spots that look the best are not good spots. Some of the spots that look the worst are great spots. It's very frustrating in that regard, but it's also a lot of fun to always be searching to me. Another question I have would be like a night bite. My assumption is that because of your clientele and you typically only guide on the chip 
that you probably don't do a, not, a lot of night fishing. Would that be right to assume that? Yes and no. Um, I've got certain clients that love night fishing and I, and we still go out. There is a night bite, but it's nothing like it, it's inconsistent. Like some years we really do well after dark and some years we just do not. And like it, I'd say my best year ever was 1998 and we just absolutely destroyed them after dark that year. It was insane. But like this last year, we did not do well after dark. Um, I got a good buddy of mine, Corey Meyer, who's out there every morning before sunup, about an hour before sunup. So, and then he stays out till after dark a lot of nights too. And uh, his night bite, his I should say, his low, low light periods were not good either. It's nice because I do have quite a few friends that fish out here, and they will night fish, so I can kind of feel them out too and see how they're doing, and uh, vice versa. It's. It, I would say the the day bite has definitely been better than the night bite in the last five to eight years out here, which I like. Yeah, I was a musky fishing guide. I mean, most guys, if they can catch them during the day, would much rather do that, I'm assuming. I know I talked to Steve yeah, and, up there quite a bit, and he's the same way. Yeah, it's hard because a lot of these guys are on vacation with family, and they don't want to stay out till midnight when they have a wife and kids sitting back at, at the resort waiting for them. And I totally get that. Um, but I do get some single guys or gals, whatever that are out, they will stay out a little later, but some of them just don't like night fishing. And that's something I learned when I was younger. Actually, I was probably like 17 when I learned that I had two older guys that were probably in their sixties at the time. We caught a 40 and a 41 incher and lost like three other fish. And this was like an hour after dark and we got into Treeland's resort. And I was pretty pumped up and sat down at the bar and had a beer with them. Or no, I was only 17, so I didn't. Sat down at the bar with them and they were exhausted. Like they had used up all their energy after dark and it wasn't, I could, and I learned right then that was not fun for them. They were pretty energetic guys and I could just see that they were wiped out. I can kind of relate to some of that too, Ty, like from the Mille Lacs days. I mean, we were living like vampires for a lack of a better way to say it. And there was times that we scheduled the trip totally to be a night trip. I mean, we were going to meet our guys at four o'clock, five o'clock in the evening and you'd get out there and then you have the bug site scene, you know, and some of these guys would freak out and just like, I'll pay you whatever you need. Just get me in. I don't want to deal with these bugs. You know? <laughs> yeah. It, it's just so crazy how, I think as guides, a lot of times we need to read the individuals that we're guiding and give them the trip that they really are dreaming about. And I think uh, a lot of times we get so hung up on just catching fish. It's, um, it's not always the biggest part to the trip in some way or fashion or form, right? Oh, no, you're totally right. Like a lot of those early days with Mille Lacs and Vermilion those muskies were just coming into the system and there was all these new guides that were popping up and they were just as eager to be out there as anybody. Maybe probably more than their clients. They wanted to be on the water. So they were dragging their clients out there and keeping them way longer than these clients wanted to be out there. I mean, this is how those guides were learning the water though. So, I mean, it's, kind of a catch 22. Some of the clientele didn't want to be out there and the guide back in the day wanted to learn the lake. So he wanted to stay out. So uh, yeah, you got to take your client into consideration. Everybody's different. 
Yeah, I can uh, honestly say that I believe that we probably abused quite a few people. And uh, <laughs> it, it was all due to our own stupidity of just wanting to be on the water. You hit it right on the head. Uh, it's live and learn. I mean, it, at that time, you guys were so excited because of all the fish that were just coming into the system. And I don't blame you. All right, Ty. So getting into this, what's some stuff that you do preseason to get ready for the muskie season for anybody that's listening that wants to do a little bit of, you'll call it homework before the season starts. Uh, I rip apart my reels and uh, grease those up. Um, make sure I got good line on, check my line from, you know, some of the line is good because I put it on maybe late season last year, but if the line's not good, of course I'll put new line on. And the other thing is I'll go through my boat and just make sure everything is, my batteries are in good shape. And then, uh, there's always new technology is coming out. So I try to figure out whether I'm going to buy this or buy that. But for the most part, I, I don't like to buy a first generation product. So I'll let everybody else figure it out the first year and then I'll jump in the second year. The new Apexes that are out, they look pretty awesome. I don't know if they're going to hold up. We'll see because the last, the Solix didn't hold up real good early on. So we'll see. But for the most part, I'll just make sure everything is working properly in my boat. Um, if there's any new wiring I need to do, get it, get like uh, the wiring rigged up. I'm going to rig up um, a 12 volt aerator to um, like a Mr. Bubble something you'd use for ice fishing, you know, or in a bait bucket. I'm going to rig that up in the boat too. So stuff like that, just simple stuff. What technology are you using currently, Ty? I know you're really handy with your electronics. I'm just kind of curious what you've incorporated over the last couple of years. Well, I'm, I'm big on the Humminbird Helix Mega Imaging. I use side imaging a lot. That's probably my best tool in the boat as far as finding fish, weeds, structure, everything. So the mega imaging, I'm really big on the Humminbird, especially. Uh, I'm not big on the other side imaging units that are on the market, but the, the Humminbird unit, I really like. I have a live scope that I use for ice fishing and I have used it in the boat. But to me, to use that live scope, it kind of takes away from the guiding experience for the client. I'm not a big fan of using that with clients. I'm not saying you won't catch fish with it, but the experience that gets ruined by using it. And if you're a tournament fisherman, that's one thing. I don't even use it really in tournaments. I, I've, I have used it. I don't do a lot of open water fishing where that is detrimental. To me, the, the Hummingbird Mega Imaging is key. And then a simple... Like as far as GPS goes, there's so many good units out there for GPS. It doesn't matter if you use Lowrance, Hummingbird, whatever. The only positive thing to use in a Hummingbird is you get to use the Lake Master chip in the, the Hummingbird, where the Lowrance, you cannot use a Lake Master chip. So you get a little more mapping with the, um, with the Hummingbird, uh, whereas with the Lowrance, you don't. But they both do the same exact thing as far as GPS goes. So. The mega imaging in Hummingbird is better and the GPS is, is good in all units. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. I do think it's interesting. You know, you're talking about the live imaging side, whether it's live scope or mega live, or uh, I can't remember what Lawrence's name is with theirs, but anyway, active target. I, yeah. The active target. I mean, if you think about all those different solutions, I mean, they're really, really cool tools. 
what I guess my comparison to when you start using something like that in a guiding aspect, and I think a lot of people are expecting all of us guides to have something like that in our boat at this point. It's like watching your kid video gaming or something, you know, hey, supper's ready. And they didn't hear anything you just said, right? And so if you're a guide standing there and you're supposed to be communicating with your clients, I think uh, that little video game kind of disturbs that whole atmosphere, if you will. Well, yeah, like there is no way you can pay attention to your client and pay attention to your side imaging and your live scope all at, and your GPS all at once because you're not going to be paying attention to your client. And these guys are out here to enjoy time on the water and have a good conversation, not just watch you stare at a graph all day. And that being said, like I, I'll sit there and watch my side imaging, but I can do it while talking to clients and not lose interest at all. Whereas like, if you're going to be active targeting, live scoping, whatever, where you're, where you're pointing your transducer at one fish and chasing that one fish that takes away from the whole program. That takes away from the client's day and it it wastes a lot of time in a lot of instances. I've yet to see it where that's winning tournaments in muskie fishing. Um, It may have won some and I didn't know about it, um, but I've yet to see where it's a dominant factor, which tells me I shouldn't be doing it while guiding. More so if I'm going to be guiding, I don't want to be taken away from my clients. And I feel like that it takes away from clients because not, Here's the other thing. I would say 90% of your clients aren't going to have that technology. So what good does it do for you to use that technology with them when they don't even have it? They can't go home and practice with it. You could show them how to do it, but that doesn't mean they're going to go home and be able to apply what you just taught them. So am I, no, no, don't get me wrong. I don't think a guide that uses live, live scope or active target mega live defines it. I don't think they're bad people. And I don't think, and some of them are doing a great job with it, but I don't think they're bad people, just so you know, because <laughs> it, it kind of comes off like I'm coming down on these guides. There are some people that really want to learn that technology and you need guides for that to teach you that stuff. Cause it, it is a game changer in some instances for the most part, the stuff I fish, it's not but there are certain lakes where that stuff is detrimental to catch fish. And it's good that we have guides out there that are doing that to teach people that want to learn it. I'm just not the, the guy that's going to do that to, to my clients because most of them won't ever use it. No, I think that's well said, Ty. I mean, it, it makes total sense. You know, if, if, you know, I always say the live stuff, you better be staring at the screen. If you're going to look at something that has a historical data, guess what? You can glance down at it periodically and get some of the same stuff that we're talking about right now. So it's interesting. I mean, it definitely is. And I think uh, as technology grows, we're going to see some more stuff here in the next five to 10 years, that's for sure. So it's always intriguing. It's cool to see, cool to hear about, cool to experiment with it. And I I think you hit it right on the head. No, I appreciate it. I I, I would assume that 360 live will be out in the next couple of years where it's um, you don't have a scrolling effect to it. And that will be a, a huge game changer, I think in the industry. And I, I don't know whether that's going to be a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah, I would uh, follow suit with you there. I, I honestly feel that that's 
it's on its way. It has to be right. I mean, that's the next exactly. Yeah. I mean, really. So it'll be interesting. So maybe yeah. you can give us a little rundown on what you're thinking as a forecast for the Chippewa flowage this year. Well, our river channels are already running really hard. So our ice will go out pretty quick once we get some, some nights above freezing. Um, our lake level is coming up real fast right now. It should be to full pool here in another two weeks, I would imagine. It usually is at the beginning of the season. There's only been a couple of years I can remember where it wasn't at full pool. We're going to have high water uh, or a normal conditions for, for water level. I hope we get some warm weather, but it's not looking that way in the future forecast. So for walleye opener coming up here pretty soon, which is uh, the, the first full weekend in May, uh, I can't remember what day it is, like the, somewhere around the 8th or 9th of May, it's going to be probably a little behind as far as the, the early fishing and hopefully our may is warm and that that'll warm up the water and get the weeds going we might have weed growth a little lacking to start the year which is okay because then it'll come in real strong in in june so i'm not too worried about the uh, conditions coming in until it's actually here when do your fish generally spawn over there uh they go through a, a little bit of a process there a lot of times they'll get out and spawn early and water temps will be, you know, in the upper 40s. And they'll get in and they'll start spawning. And then we always have a storm that comes in and they push back out. And then they'll come back in. And usually that happens in, uh, I'd say, early May, late April, early May. You know, so that's where you get those tiger muskies out here. Is they'll be at the northern pike. They'll still be in there finishing spawning when the, the muskies come in to spawn early. Then they'll come back in again when the water temp, after the, usually you get that storm and, and they'll all push out and then the water temp starts warm up again. And then they'll all come in, all the muskies will come in. And that's usually around the second week of May, between the first and second week of May. And, and it'll go through the third week of May and then they're usually done. So generally you never have that issue where you could be going into your musky opener where uh, you might still have some pre-spawn or spawning fish at that particular time? It's extremely rare. I mean, it, it has happened. Um, and on those instances, then I will go back in some of the back bays. And, and usually it's small males you're getting out there. Again, a lot of the females are already done. They're, they're already back out in the main lake. So you, if you just want action, you can go back into the back bays on those rare instances. So a lot of people think it's all water temperature related and it's not, it's also egg development related. So it's similar to like, if a woman's pregnant, she's not going to wait till it's 80 degrees out to go have her baby. No, she's going to wait till her body is at nine months and she's going to go have a baby. It's the same exact thing. Their egg development is dependent on the previous year and it's a timing thing. They're, they're not going to keep their eggs in them just because of the weather. So one of the things that I've always uh, kind of been curious about, you know, there's been a couple of those years where, like you talked about, the weather gets cold and the fish kind of push back out. They don't go through the spawn activity. What's your opinions on some of that, Ty? Uh, it's always interesting to me. I mean, we had a couple seasons where we as anglers, not biologists by any means, but uh, we as anglers, that's me, thought that maybe our fish, every time they went in to go spawn, the weather would change. It gets super nasty cold. They'd push back out. They'd come back in when it warmed up 
and they'd push back out. And we almost felt like they were actually absorbing their eggs to the point where they held them. They didn't drop them because of weather-related stuff. What do you feel about that? So I studied fisheries biology, and I can tell you that, now granted, I am no biologist by any means. I can tell you that it does happen in certain species. Um, I don't know that anybody even knows that whether it happens in muskies or not. I don't know, to be honest with you. It, I think that there, I know with like crappie, it does happen. Um, I haven't heard of it happening with muskies, but it seems somewhat legit. And sometimes they just will hold on to them. I mean, we've caught, we've caught fish that in August and September still had eggs in them. And when you pick them up, they're spilling eggs. So there's times where they will hold on to those eggs in circumstances, whether it be weather, whether it be age, whether it be um, a function in the fish that is not working. There's times where they will hold on to those eggs. And it's something that you can attribute it to the weather, but it might not be the weather. It might be bodily function that's, that's doing that. So it's really hard to gauge that. And long story short there, no, long story long there. It's hard to gauge that. Yeah, I think one of the interesting points to this whole thing is, unfortunately, I think muskies kind of fall to the bottom of the list when it comes to these different studies. So it's tough to, I mean, will we ever know everything that we need to or want to know about a muskie? More than likely not, just because the dollars aren't going to be generated to actually go do those types of studies. Yeah, and that's sad but true. Um, But the in, in the DNR's defense, they've got a lot of things going on and with very, the, the personnel is not there to really take care of everybody and everybody wants attention right now, but they can't, they can't give everybody the attention they need. Yeah. Amen. I, I would totally agree with that. I mean, I, <laughs> the last person I'd want to be is a, a DNR person or a biologist and uh, have, everybody's got their own idea of importance. It's hard to cover all the bases. Right, right. So, Ty, you know, one of the things that uh, the last part to this whole thing that I would like to talk about anyway is how you deal with opener pressure. And then I know COVID has kind of made a little bit more pressure as well. You know, it seems like every year, and I said this in the last podcast, it seems like every year we have the initial day or two musky fishermen that come out just for that opener and everybody's excited they're all hitting the water at the same time how are you dealing with that yeah we we definitely have an influx since covid because canada was shut down actually it was kind of the perfect storm illinois canada minnesota and michigan were all shut down right at the same time wisconsin opened up up here so we uh, we had an influx of people that was insane. I mean, the phone was ringing off the hook for resorts, guides, everybody. Yeah, it, it got a little busy out here, but I'll be honest, like a lot of the people that come out here on the chip, they, they do a lot of just boating. It, it's a beautiful lake, and they're just driving around to pull up on shore and do some swimming and play some frisbee and have a couple beers and relax. Um, as far as fishing pressure... I haven't seen it really climb a ton, even during the last couple of years with, with this whole COVID thing. It's pretty steady. Um, you can always get to a spot or two, and there's so many spots out here to fish, so you don't feel like you're getting in line to fish a spot. You know, like Pete's Bar, for instance, it's one of the best-known spots out here. In the mid-'80s, you'd see 15 boats every night out there, and now you see three to five at the most some nights you see one or two. 
So it's definitely um, not the pressure that we used to have uh, because a lot of the Minnesota lakes didn't have fish when I was a kid. So a lot of Minnesota fishermen were over here and now they're fishing throughout Minnesota. And there's just more musky lakes now, so it spreads people out more, which is good. But uh, if you do want to get up here and fish, you're going to want to get a hold of the resorts like right now because there's not much open. Uh, a lot of people that were going to Canada now are staying in the States and coming to lakes like the Chippewa Flowage or Vermilion or uh, Lac Lutezere, lakes that are similar to Canadian-style lakes. So, yeah, if you, if you do want to get out here and do some boating, fishing, swimming, whatever, just plain vacation, you might want to get a hold of the resorts right now because there's a lot of great resorts out here. I think uh, that's one of the most special things about going up in that whole neck of the woods, that Hayward area. I mean, it truly, truly has a ton of different resorts. It kind of feels like maybe like when I was a kid, even here in Minnesota. I mean, Minnesota has changed a lot where a lot of these resorts, you know, it, it made sense for them to sell. It's kind of changed the whole outlook of a lot of our lakes, you know. I mean, property values went up and guess what? a lot of these resorts decided, hey, it's time to bail and, and make the money. So it, it's a cool, unique atmosphere throughout the whole Hayward area. And we've lost a couple of resorts out here, but we've also gained a few that have been shut down, basically, weren't really being run as resorts that took on new ownership. And they actually opened up and, and they're doing great. So it, we're pretty blessed to have what we have out here. And it, you said you hit it on the, the nail on the head. Like um, you look at Lake Vermilion, there used to be a lot more resorts out there. And, and now there's, you know, half. So it, it, we're pretty lucky. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good thing you mentioned it, though, because I was curious about that, whether or not there was still a lot of availability and if there was still as much demand up there in northern Wisconsin. And you clearly answered that question. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of people come this way or want to come this way. So I'm assuming, how how's your bookings for this coming season? Are you pretty booked up or you still have availability? Yeah, my May and June are already booked. Um, August is booked. Uh, July, I have one guy to fill those days. So I'm pretty much booked for the whole year. Um, I might be able to get a couple people out um, in the evening here or there, but uh, pretty much done for the year. Okay. <laughs> so then... If I say, hey, Ty, if people want to get in touch with you, how do they go about doing that? You can give out the information again, but it's probably not going to work out for this season. No, um, I, you know, like I said, I might have a half day here or a half day there they, I, that I could get them out, but all my full days are pretty much taken. So, I mean, if I can get them out for four hours, great, you know. Yeah, well, that's a good spot to be in. I know a lot of guides that... You know, they're in similar situations, and in the way things are, it's great that you guys are still getting booked up. Uh, we're pretty lucky up here. There's a lot of good people that come up here, and, you know, a lot of people from Minneapolis, Chicago, and, and they bring their friends, and they it's kind of a trickle-down effect of good people. So we're, we're pretty pretty lucky to have what we have up here. All right, Ty. Well, we want to thank you for coming out, talking spring musky fishing with us. We hope that you have a great musky season based on your past seasons. I'm sure that you're going to have plenty of success, plenty of big fish in the net. We want to thank all of our listeners for coming out today to listen to another podcast, and we'll catch everybody again with a new episode tomorrow. Thank you, Jeff.